This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson with PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a pleasurable and peppy life. Let's take care of a little business before we get to today's guest. It's May, and that means that the old report, the label literacy, goes back into the vault, and a new one comes out for the month of May. And this new one is really simple. It's just a two-pager of a bunch of meal templates that you can make that are delicious, plant-powered, easy, and no recipe required. In fact, that's what I'm calling it, the No Recipe Required Cheat Sheet, and you can get it at plantyourself.com slash cheat. That's just the lowercase letters C-H-E-A-T. Second thing, I had a podcast consultation with a podcast pro, and one of the things I asked him was, how do I generate more revenue from the podcast? And we talked about all the things that I'm not willing to do, including taking advertising, including taking kickbacks from guests, stuff like that, sponsorships. So we arrived at a couple of things. One is uh, me promoting my own services a little bit more assertively, which I'll get to later or next week or something. But the other idea I kind of liked was to produce some swag, to produce some plant yourself merchandise. I was thinking, you know, T-shirts, running singlets, baseball caps, aprons, uh, tooth tattoos, uh, really, really powerful spotlights that can like shine on the moon, stuff like that. And I'm playing around with an image and a tagline. The tagline that I like the best so far is love yourself, dare yourself, plant yourself. So the question is, would you wear that? Would you rock it on a mug, on a T-shirt? What else, you know, would you be interested in? And if you could give me some feedback, the best place to do that is on the Plant Yourself Facebook page, which is just facebook.com slash plant yourself, all one word. And while you're there, you can become a fan of that page if Facebook is your thing. It's time to introduce today's guest. I'm really excited about this episode. I released it early for many of my students and coaching clients because this is such an important life skill and especially It's an important skill if you are surrounded by people with whom you need to negotiate to get your needs met around healthy food, around time for yourself, around time to sleep, around where you go on vacation, where you're going to dinner, whether the person or people you're with are helping you or getting in your way. My guest is Chris Voss, who is the author of the fabulous book, Never Split the Difference. You can get that book on Amazon, but if you want to send some affiliate money my way and pay the same price, you can just go to the show notes for today's episode. That's plantyourself.com slash 208 and order that from the links there, and that way we both benefit. Anyway, back to Chris Voss. He was the lead international hostage negotiator with the FBI for many years. And he shares his expertise, his experience, and his principles and tactics of negotiation in his book, Never Split the Difference. And he also shares it with us today on the podcast. And specifically, I wasn't asking about things like salary negotiations or trouble with neighbors or the typical types of things that people have negotiations about or, you know, making deals or releasing hostages or getting bank robbers out of the vault, stuff like that. I wanted to talk to him about negotiating for health behaviors, negotiating with spouses, negotiating with partners, with colleagues, with anyone who's a part of our environment who can either be an ally to our new better behaviors or an accomplice to our 
old, not so great behaviors? How do we negotiate with all these people effectively? And as a bonus, we talked about how to negotiate with yourself because very often, you know, I'm getting ready to do my workout and some voice inside me is like, no, don't do it today. Take it easy. Stay in. Or there's some meal put in front of me that I know is not in my best interest to eat, but there's a voice saying, oh, go ahead, just do it, don't worry about it. So if you've ever found yourself having to negotiate with your spouse over what to have for dinner or with your kids about whether they were going to eat their vegetables or with a coworker about bringing in the donuts and putting them on their desk or with the voice of your own inner pig or inner sloth that wants us to consume you know, copious amounts of Little Debbie's Nutty Bars while we sit on the couch and binge watch Netflix – this conversation will be very, very valuable for you. So without further ado, Chris Voss, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. Thank you, Howard. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I wanted to talk to you about negotiation, but specifically negotiation around, you know, advocating for the healthy lifestyles that we want with family, friends, coworkers, you know, servers at restaurants, things like that. But, you know, I want to start with, kind of you and your story, um, which you tell in, in your fantastic book, Never Split the Difference. And I'm going to say right now that everybody should get this book. Um, it, is, it is the quickest and most profound return on investment that I've ever had from a book. Within, within a week of buying it and reading it, I had saved $500 on a car negotiation. And I was just saying before we started recording, last night I saved myself about four hours by negotiating a seat on a different flight. So that, you know, even before I've learned the skills, just reading the examples and seeing how I can apply it to my life, it has been one of the best things I've ever bought. Sound like you picked this stuff up pretty quickly, huh? Well, you know, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I have yet to, uh, to do hardball. And in fact, you know, I asked for a thousand and I got 500. So in fact, I totally <laughs> neglected the, ah, the, the advice right. of never split the difference. But the point is like, I, I felt like I could ask. And, and before I read the book, I wouldn't even have asked. So it's, it's even just at that level that it's, it's been a profound influence upon me and my family. See, you know, and what I really appreciate about you saying that too, is it, it's crazy that a lot of people somehow we feel like we don't have permission to ask and it's just it's an invisible barrier that we put on ourselves i even still do that to myself sometimes i'm surprised to hear that because you know you describe yourself in the book and in watching your videos and reading you seem like very sort of uh i, f I forget the uh the terminology but not an accommodator or an analyst but the third one yeah an assertive i'm assertive. an actual born assertive yeah, you know, I mean, I, I needed to, to talk my way into a closed um, business club and a closed business on a Saturday the other day, and I had I had called in advance, and they weren't answering the phone, and I'd already run across one security guard in a related building, and that was a really grumpy person as I was helping my girlfriend get her car back, you know, and I was just like, you know, I'd, I'd I had all this negativity spinning in my head and I just, I almost didn't walk over there and I did pretty much what you talked about doing on the airline. You know, I just walked over and kind of did a, what we call a cold read on somebody just empathized in the situation. Cause I knew that it was, I was going to be a big pain in the neck getting in this building. And I said, I said, look, I got an insane request. This is going to be ridiculous. And this woman just 
brightened right up and she walked over the elevator and she put her key in the elevator and opened it up and and i was like wow if i thought it was going to be that easy i would have put myself through all that negativity thinking about uh, how it was going so yeah we, we do this to ourselves yeah and a lot of the people that i work with like it's it's our it's our trademark to be accommodators to avoid conflict to make everybody else happy and as a result of course we make nobody else happy we just you know we just infect them with our martyrdom and and so you know i really wanted to have you on to kind of give us all a a, a gentle kick in the ass to to ask for the things that we deserve that are going to make us happy and are going to make the people around us happy Awesome. Excellent. Yeah. Come to the edge and fly, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's begin the leap. Um, so you talk about like the old rules of negotiation and the new rules of negotiation. I'd love for you just to give us a, a quick tour of your journey and like, you know, who you are for people who, who won't have read uh, the book yet, like what your, what your cred is, what your experience is and how you came to adopt these new rules that are in your book, Never Split the Difference. All right. Yeah, sure. All right. So I'm a recovering FBI agent. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Chris. I haven't investigated anybody for seven years. (laughs) (laughs) Like an AA meeting, right? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and I was was a small-town Iowa guy, ended up as the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. I'm from a blue-collar, middle-class family. My dad was an entrepreneur, town of 7,000 people. You know, we're just trying to build a better life for, for himself and his, his family and his kids and, and be an honest, hard-working businessman. And, you know, I kind of grew up with the idea that, like, hey, let's figure this out. Hard work showing up and hard work will get you a long way. And somewhere along the line, I like to have fun with the people that I worked with. And uh, and so consequently, I ended up a couple different groups of people within the FBI at different times where we like to work hard and, and have fun with each other. And I was lucky enough to be on some great teams. I mean, we did some cool stuff. Got won the Attorney General's Award. I was nominated for the direct FBI Director's Award. Was nominated for Attorney General's Award several times, as a matter of fact. But mostly because I work with great people and, and try to be understanding of them. So then in the process of getting better at hostage negotiation, talked my way into Harvard Law School's negotiation course and uh, learned a lot from those guys. And, and I had always suspected that, you know, been trying to apply this stuff in business and personal life since my early days on a suicide hotline. I was like, this stuff, why should this stuff only, this great communication and empathy and you know, really understanding the other side and then making the other side feel good about being understood. Why should this just be restricted to, you know, somebody in crisis when heck half the time in our personal lives, we feel like we're in crisis anyway. (laughs) So, you know, and and I got to tell you something, you think negotiating a prison siege is tough. You know, maybe you ought to try a family dinner around the holidays, right? (laughs) (laughs) Especially these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I just started. Uh, I from my early days, I had they uh, they told me to go volunteer on a suicide hotline before I could be a, a hostage negotiator, which was the best training I ever got. 
and that was back in the early nineties. And, and from, from those days forward, I was always looking for the parallels and, and even in my, with, uh, my significant others, with my kids, you know, with everybody, because the stuff is just, you know, it's too good to just not let people who are important to you experience the benefits also to tell kind of a long story. Right. So the Harvard negotiation model was a very cognitive model, and it focused on sort of positions and interests, and it was designed to get everybody to win-win. And you discovered that as, as, as good as it sounded, it had some holes in it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not logical. We're not rational. I wish we were. I mean, uh, when I first started teaching, after I, I went through Harvard, taught at Harvard uh, 2000. Seven, um, and then started teaching in uh, in a business school and uh, part time MBA students. And if it's if they're part time, it means, you know, they got a real job during the day, and that you know they're not interested in any academic stuff. They want to solve real problems. And, you know, just the idea that I used to have to try to pitch the idea that we were emotional. And it was, you know, uh, emotional intelligence is a prized commodity in the business world is just recently been accepted and even still grudgingly so P- people don't want to use emotional intelligence. And so the old rules, if you were, were, you know, let's be rational about this. Let's come to a wise agreement. Like my Harvard brothers and sisters, you know, they always had a stu- two step process and it was said, well, let's talk about how we're going to negotiate. And once we agree on how we're going to negotiate, then we'll negotiate. And that's nonsense. You know, and I would sit there and be like, fine, we can talk about it all day long. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do no matter what you say. And I think that's how win-win negotiators get into trouble. You know, they're like, they want permission to negotiate when instead, like, you should use emotional intelligence in your interactions whether or not the other side grants you permission, period. Because it's a better way to negotiate and it makes for better relationships. And you shouldn't need permission to have a better relationship. You shouldn't need permission to lighten somebody's day up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to lighten your day up whether you like it or not. <laughs> right. we, we don't ask permission to make people miserable. Yeah, there you go, right? <laughs> we seem to feel free to do that. I mean, when you're talking about your airline negotiation the other day, when you walked up to that clerk, you just uh, you just made, and I think you said it was a woman, by what you said right off the bat, you just made her day better by what you said. I mean, you shouldn't, so what if you, it, it, let's say you hadn't gotten anywhere with her. You know, you made a positive, de- po- a positive deposit in the karma bank of the universe. You made the universe a slightly better place in that instance. And, and if you get anything else out of it, so much the better. And, you know, I think uh, the more we do that with each other every day, the better off we all are. I love that you said that because, you know, first of all, it, it makes me feel like like the next time I'm, a, I'm at an airport and I don't need anything, like why wouldn't I do that anyway? <laughs> like why why do I need to wait until I need something from someone else? to like So it, do, it doesn't feel manipulative and tactical, but just like the way I go through the world is making positive deposits in the in the karma bank of the universe. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, it's, that's a great point. And we, we don't even do it. I mean, a, a guy that I consider to be a spiritual advisor, spiritual mentor, happened to be a 
Protestant minister in New York City, you know, he, he had a thing he called the lift game. And he just wanted to go through the day with how many people he could lift up. How many people can I lift up today? Interestingly enough, he was actually a protege of Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking. Uh-huh. And Arthur and Arthur taught me and my son the lift game. You know, how many people can we lift up today? Just say something nice to him and then keep moving. And and then consequently, actually, you're a happier person as a result. It's a it's a mercenary way to make yourself yeah. happier. <laughs> I love that. So when you discovered these um, sort of emotional intelligence components to negotiation, can you kind of give us a sense of like what, what that looks like, maybe com- compared to the hyper-rational, let's discuss how we're going to discuss it, let's make wise agreements, let's look for the, the, the zone of agreement and the BATNA and all that. Like what, what does it look like um, to – to approach a negotiation from a place of emotional intelligence. You mentioned like a cold read as, as a, and, and you've, and used, you've, you've used the word empathy several times. So what, what kind of, what does that yeah. look like? Well, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of being a little proactive. I mean, you know, we don't got to be geniuses to have a pretty good feel walking into a situation of, of what it is now or what it's getting ready to be. So if if I get something to say to you that I think you're going to react negatively to, you know, I'll start up by saying, you know, you're not going to like this. Um, and that as opposed to, you know, I'm worried that you're, you know, I don't want you to be unhappy with this. There's, this, there's a two millimeter shift between denial and observation. And the brain science now, that, that's the other thing that's nice about these days. The brain science actually backs this up. Uh, you know, if you if you observe a negative emotion you you diminish it. You don't plan it. You plan them by denying it. You know, I don't want you to think I'm being a jerk here. I don't I don't want you to think I'm being too demanding. Uh-huh. That's a denial and that makes it worse. Um but if you say, look, this is gonna sound demanding. It's gonna I'm gonna sound like a jerk here. You know, that that dials it down immediately. It's some people the reaction to that is so negative, it just amazes me. Oh uh, well it's it's, that, that, it's so counterintuitive to to lead that way because all I want to do as as an accommodator is to make all those differences disappear. I just want I just want us to merge, <laughs> right? Yeah. So so if I you know what I want to say is oh this is gonna you know if I'm if I'm gonna negotiate with my spouse about like the food rules of the kitchen, what goes in the fridge, what's you know what goes on the on the shelf and all that, I want to make it in my mind. I want to go like this is gonna be great for you too. So let's let's not even think of this as a difference. And yet you're saying, like, really step in and acknowledge and put, put a spotlight front and center on the negative from the other person's perspective. Right, right. And what the other person, what they feel is this tremendous amount of appreciation. And, and that's why, you know, it's, it, it's so counterintuitive to us, but to them it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's awesome. And, and I went back, I was just going back through because I have, I have my students in the classes, they write papers about their experience in real, the real world about applying these skills. And I was looking at one between a husband and wife the other day. And a husband wants to talk to his wife about buying a house that he knows is the type of house that she's already expressed that she doesn't want. But he knows they can get his, it's a, it's a great step forward. It's a, it's a good way to get started. And he says, honey, I got something I want to talk to you about. I know it's going to seem like I never pay any attention to you and I don't listen to you and I don't appreciate 
you know, what you want. Wow. And she stopped in her tracks and she says, and he also said, and I know I'm going to seem like a jerk. She stopped in her tracks and she goes like, she, she says, she says, what's up? She says, you know, I, 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 I don't think that you don't appreciate um, what I want and that you don't pay attention to what I say. And then he laughed and he said back to her, so I am a jerk. And they both laughed. <laughs> but he got her attention in a way where she was really dialed in and felt so appreciated that he respected what, uh, how she was feeling about something. And, and they, and they got through it really quickly and she felt respected and appreciated. And I'll tell you one other that I just thought of too. Um, uh, two good friends of mine that are both, um, extremely successful executives in Silicon Valley. Uh, they, the, the, the spouse to be, they're engaged to be married. She says to her husband or her fiance one day, she says, what's going on with you? I like. I, I like talking to you these days. This seems really odd. Why do I like talking to you? And he goes, well, I've been taking this negotiation course and they're making me actually use what they're teaching in my, in my real life. <laughs> and she says, this is awesome. What's the, what's the course? What are you learning? And he says, yeah, well, it's built around this book called Never Split the Difference. And she turned around, she went out and bought six copies for all of her girlfriends, husbands, and boyfriends. <laughs> <laughs> Because she says, I like talking to him all of a sudden. He's not always trying to solve my problems. He appreciates how I feel. I love it. <laughs> and the, so it's kind of crazy. Yeah. And I love how, you know, the, it, when I have something that I want to bring up that I know is, you know, going to be potentially conflictual or unpleasant, and I'm trying to hide it, I do a shitty job of hiding it. So, <laughs> so and so it comes across. My wife's like, okay, what did I do wrong? Like, he's going he's gonna to be angry at me. Like even you know the energy of me coming and saying, "Hey, can I talk to you about something?" Like I think almost everyone hears that as you need to go to the principal's office. You've been bad, and so oh, I can tell you something. That is a that is a loaded question. Can I talk to you about something? It's like proceed at your peril. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like oh, I look. I know. I I know. I like talking to you, but I know I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> Right, so to to, yeah. to to step in and take ownership of 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 my my negative contribution, so you you're in the driver's seat. You get to absolve me or say, "Yeah, I do feel that way sometimes." It, it really kind of feels like it, it breaks the ice. Yeah, and and the and the mere act of someone saying, "Yeah, I do feel that way sometimes," again, the brain science shows us that in that moment, the negativity dials down. The recognition of a negative emotion by a person always dials it down. Always, always, always. They've watched the brain electronically. They know where the negative emotions are amplified in the brain. We also know now that there's basically three times the amount of real estate in the brain to amplify negative emotions, which is why basically negatives hit have three times the impact in our lives, three to nine times the impact. And so knowing that you can, the mere recognition and awareness of a negative dials it down each and every time is counterintuitive, but it's a powerful thing. Right. And I, it, it, when we're on the receiving end of it, it makes total sense. And, and yet it's, uh, it's, it feels, it's crazy how counterintuitive it feels to do something that feels so good when it's done to us. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly right. If it gets done to us, it feels enormously good. And we somehow we don't make that connect because we're afraid to, to do unto others. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you want to begin a negotiation, you can start with this proactivity. You know, you're not going to like this or, or as your, uh, your couple, you know, the, the man and the couple did it where he's kind of acknowledging some potential negative thoughts. What's, what's the next thing you would have people do as they enter into a, a negotiation? What's, what, what's, what's the goal? What are they looking for? Um, well, first of all, then you, once you do that, you got to go silent. You got to let it sink in. You know, there's something called the effective pause. And you, you got to let this stuff sink in. A lot of people are, are horrified at that concept in and of itself. Um, some people really struggle with silence, especially those that signal their anger with silence, you know, giving somebody the silent treatment. Mm. And so their problem is they misinterpret going silent as this person's going to think I'm angry. And, and they really, and having said something that's really important, you got to let it sink in. So you're not signaling anger in this context with silence. Okay. You're giving the other person a lot of appreciation. You're letting them react. You're actually letting the brain trigger specific chemicals and let it, those chemicals work through the system, serotonin, dopamine, a variety of things like that that are good for us. You know, you're letting that stuff have its impact and sink in. And so then you let the other person respond. Now, they're either going to want to know what's on your mind, uh, which you, you can then sort of express a goal. But then the other thing to do in all negotiations, the secret to getting the upper hand or to having a collaborative, collaborative relationship is really letting the other, other side have some control also. You know, you ask a how or what question. You know, what do you want to do? You know, uh, honey, I, I know this seems really selfish of me and you really love watching TV and you, and you feel like that this is our, our time together. And at the same time, I'm struggling with, um, you know, eating better, sleeping better. I, you know, I, I want to construct um, an opportunity, you know, whatever it is your goal, you know, sort of lay out your goal and then say, you know, what do you want me to do? How, how, do you want me, how do you want me to deal with this? Invite the other person into the collaboration so that they feel a part of it. They feel engaged in the outcome. You know, then, then whatever you're working for becomes as soon as they're invited in with the how or what question, you know, now, now it's part of them too, especially when, uh, because uh, you're significant other. This is a joint endeavor anyway. So you want them to feel ownership in a positive nature of the outcome. And it's more likely that it's going to happen as a result that they've gotten ownership as well. You know, they're going to they're gonna be part of the implementation. Who knows? They may even, it gives you the opportunity to get a black swan, if you will. Like, maybe it's something they want or maybe they have a better idea. So, and, and, and a significant enough period of time, the other person has something to contribute that's going to make it better. Now this is a double win. Mm. So, um, what what do you mean by a, a black swan for people who haven't uh, read your book? All right, yeah, a, a piece of information that changes everything 
that either, you know, it's, uh, typically it's a positive. You're like, holy cow, I want that too. Or it's a negative that you weren't aware of, which now you can navigate. Because, you know, negative that you're unaware of, that's a landmine that you're going to step on. And you just soon know where those are. And then, of course, you know, the flexibility in, in what you're after. There's great husband-wife negotiation over Christmas tree, you know, that I talk about in my book because it's like one of my favorite negotiations. Husband wants an artificial tree. Wife wants a real tree. And he can't figure out why she won't accept his logic. You know, logic. There is no logic. <laughs> but he's got all this logic, all this rationality. And she just don't want to hear it, don't want to hear it, don't want to hear it. Shutting down on him because she wants a real tree. So finally he asked himself, he goes, you know, there's got to be, you know, why is she crazy? <laughs> so, but he wants to show, demonstrate some understanding. So he's asking himself, like, all right, so she's this crazy about this, and I don't know anything about it. Whatever's driving to her happened to her before I met her. And we're talking about a family thing, so maybe it has to do with when she was growing up. So he thinks he's going to diffuse this by just saying, like, it seems like he had real trees growing up, which is, you know, an application of a tool we call a label. It's just an observation. Seems like it sounds like. Just uh, observing. It's ridiculously powerful. It's a stealth weapon. And she goes, yeah. She says, I have all these great memories of, of the holidays with my, my brothers and sisters and the smell of a real Christmas tree. And those memories are so strong in my mind. Every time I smell a tree, I think about how wonderful the holidays were with my family. And I want our kids to have those same memories. And he's like, bang, we're getting a real tree. (laughs) (laughs) So so sometimes, excuse me, sometimes when you're negotiating with family, you can win by losing. Right. It's not it's not the same thing as like the car dealership where they convince you to pay 36K instead of 30K. Right. With with family, if if someone else has a better representation of reality, it's it's yeah. fine to, quote, lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, their win is better than your win. <laughs> like and, you know, and that's I teach people never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. I mean, you get your ego all invested in your solution. The chances are actually probably 90 percent that there's a better outcome that you're going to completely miss because you're so sure you're right. So let's, I'd like to slow down on this idea of labels because it's, it's so powerful. And again, it's a thing that's really not intuitive for most people to do. Can you kind of talk, talk us through like what, what is a label? How do you, what's it for and how do you use it? Yeah. All right. So it's a real simplistic design but it's a very specific design. And you say it seems like, it sounds like, it looks like. You might also say it seems, it sounds, it looks. And so in this instance, the husband said, the husband ends up, ends up saying, it seems like he had real trees growing up. I mean, it's, and it's, it's an observation. It's an innocent observation. Now, uh, and I'll contrast it because some people are taught to say, well, what I'm hearing is, and that's the wrong way to do it. That leans you in the wrong direction. As soon as you use the word I, what I'm hearing is you're communicating to the other person that you're more interested in your own perception huh. than them. You know, I is, is a word that signals self-centering, self-absorbance. 
it's not necessarily wrong, but this is not the right context. You want to use the word I in another context. It seems, it sounds, it looks. Now, what happens when you say that to someone? You trigger a specific interaction in the brain. It goes in their ears. It hits the prefrontal cortex, the CEO of the brain. Your brain is like this great team that works together and it interacts. You got a CEO and then you got your emotional system, which is called the limbic system. Limbic system always listens. Limbic system is active when you're asleep. You can shut, you can as effectively shut down your emotions, your limbic system, as effectively as you can shut down your breathing. <laughs> ah, I can, I can hold my breath, yeah, for about a minute. <laughs> so what happens when you say it seems, it sounds, it looks, the prefrontal cortex hollers back at the limbic system and says, hey, does, does it seem like this to us? <laughs> and that triggers a contemplative moment inside. And in that contemplative moment, that's when you either dial down the negatives or you dial up the positives. It's the, those two, those two uh, gauges in a brain work completely opposite. Um, I, a friend of mine once said to me, it sounds like your family's really close. When I've been talking about my family, I remember a literal physical rush. You know, this, I felt so good when he said that because it, it, so it drew together everything that I've been telling him and describing my family. I now know from the brain science that he punched a portion of my amygdala that releases serotonin and dopamine in my system, which is why it felt so good. Or when you label a negative, there's a different response where the negative dialed down and people gain strength. They get stronger. That's why when a husband said, it, you know, it seems like he had real trees growing up. And she goes, yes, because he hit that portion of the brain that triggered that memory that actually released serotonin and dopamine into her system and made her feel better. So this, it's a very specific design. It seems, it sounds, it looks, you seem, you sound, you look, because it maximizes the contemplative reaction in the other person's brain. Right. So, I mean, what, one thing that occurs to me about that is when you, when you do give someone a dopamine rush, you're giving them a gift. And so it, it amazes me how much people will talk after that, like what they will come back and say. Like you have a conversation like that and you say just those simple labels and the other person talks the whole time and they walk away thinking, gosh, you're the greatest conversationalist ever. Right? Because <laughs> right? they just want to they just want to share. Right. Doesn't doesn't that is, is that like a reciprocity thing? Like what what about that is so powerful that then people will tell you all this stuff? Yeah, you know, I I don't know, but I have people say it to me all the time. I mean, I got, I got people saying like, God, I can't get people to shut up. <laughs> I mean, you know, I I never had conversations that were like this before. People are opening up in ways that I never imagined, and the quality of the conversations and the overall quality of their life just goes up in in a, in a crazy way. And so, yeah, I mean, pe people just. Be, uh, you know, these negative barriers that stop us from talking, stop us from sharing, because, you know, we're people are going to say, oh, I don't want you to feel that way. You know, we try to save each other all the time. Um, I don't want you to think that. I mean, and, and, and for somebody to say to us, I don't want you to feel, I don't want you to think it. You know, while they're trying to save us, 
from these feelings, what they're actually doing is creating these barriers that we just don't want to hear. And you say to somebody, I don't want you to feel that way. What the other person feels, says to themselves inside is like, all right, so this, this is a point not to talk to this person. <laughs> you know, I, this is a lesson that I've just learned. Don't talk to this person about this stuff because I'm just going to hit a barrier. And, you know, that's kind of how, how this happens and why people don't open up and open up effectively, too. Here's, here's another crazy thing. Like when I was on a crisis hotline, you know, I, I, I don't know what you think when you think you're going to volunteer on a suicide hotline. But I think you imagine that you're going to be on a phone with somebody who's suicidal for hours. And they limited us to 20 minutes. <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, 20 minutes? Are you out of your mind? They're like, no, if, if you do it right, 20 minutes is going to be more than enough time. And in fact, it is. Once you get people talking, you're not there for hours. You, you have uh, a three to 17 minute of quality conversation instead of having somebody bend in your ear for six hours because you're not listening. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that surprised me the most about the advice in your book is to make a label even if it's wrong. Like I always I always uh, felt like, you know, it's risky to say that because what if like if I said, well it seems like you're angry and I'm wrong, or it seems like you had fresh trees as a kid. And if I'm wrong, that feels like I've just created this huge disconnect. And and you would yeah. you advise just the opposite. Like sometimes a wrong label is the best thing you could do. Can you explain that? Yeah, that was a cool thing about the laboratory that was the classes and still is the classes I was teaching because sometimes people would discover something by accident. You know, it never occurred to us how effective a mislabel would be. Um, but it's so insanely effective that other people go like, no, 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 that's not it. This is what it is. Um, and, and people love to correct. <laughs> and the label feels very interactive so that you're open to it. And in, in, in business deals, some guys actually intentionally mislabel because you're actually more likely to get guarded information from a mislabel than you are from a question. Like a uh, typical real estate transaction where we first saw this, you know, uh, talking to a broker, the, if, you, if, they, if the buyer would have said, you know, why is the seller selling? The broker would have said, like, ah, you know, uh, they just, you know, they feel they'd come up with some nonsense. But they, uh, the buyer used a, a label that says it seems like the seller's selling because he doesn't believe in the market fundamentals. And the, and the broker went, no, 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 he's actually, he's got a couple of other properties that are under financial pressure and needs some money. I mean, that was a quick blurting out of information after the word no. People feel protected when they say no, they're far more likely to, to, to then throw a bunch more information out there. And then it happens all the time. So triggering a no with a mislabel is a great skill. Right. And, and, and even especially maybe doing that with people, you know, well, with family members, because I had in my notes to ask you about like, can black swans occur with, you know, within, between spouses. And cause you know, black swan is the name of, of your, uh, of your consulting practice, the black swan group. So obviously it's very important to you. But I, I was thinking, like, yeah, in a real estate deal or between two business partners, there's a lot that they're trying to hide from each other. But then, like, is that true in intimate relationships? Like, it seems like a stupid question, but are there things people are trying to hide to, from each other? 
Yeah, or, you know, afraid to admit. I mean, you know, trying to hide because they're scared of the other person's reaction or afraid to admit. It's not just spouses, it's brothers and sisters, too. Like, you know, my older sister was my, uh, I always looked up to my older sister, especially in high school. And, you know, my older sister dated a captain on a football team. She was a member of the homecoming court. I mean, she, she's, her senior year was, I was like, wow. And, and the football team were all these superstars. I mean, and I so admired, you know, I looked up to her so much. And, you know, we're talking just a couple years ago because I, I perceived, you know, I, I don't know that there's a human being that's not unhappy during high school because it's just because the hormones are raging through our bodies. And we're trying to adapt. But I remember saying to her, like, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was pretty unhappy in my last couple of years in high school. And, and the shock look came across her face and, and she talked about the, the, the same thing. And she, I perceived that she was deliriously happy with how great it looked and I think she perceived that I was happy-go-lucky and so you know it's between brothers and sisters after all these years we had these misconceptions of the other person it wasn't like we were nefariously hiding the information from the other person you know we're afraid to admit it and I think that's the biggest thing uh, with spouses too it's you know maybe there are a few nefarious things that people are hiding but by and large you know, we're afraid to admit our vulnerabilities if if we just thought it would be okay. And so, yeah, negotiation, black swans with spouses, tons of them there, tons of them there. Mm. And it seems like beyond that specific negotiation, if you can develop a relationship with your spouse or your family, whoever it is, in which they are unafraid to admit vulnerabilities to you, that feels like a really beautiful, graceful relationship. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And when you get to the point that you're unafraid to admit vulnerabilities, then the counterintuitive thing is the other person actually uh, res respects you more, sees you as more fearless. I mean, it's, it's approaching things you're afraid of fearlessly. It's not whether or not you're afraid of it. It's whether or not you can approach it fearlessly. Mm. And, it, and it really builds esteem in somebody else to say like, yeah, but I'm scared to death every single day. You know, that sort of admission like that, uh, the admission and the way that you say it, they're like, wow, yeah, I'm scared. I'm scared too, but he seems pretty fearless about his fear. It's, and the, the brain, you know, this, this circuitry we have in our, in our head is just some crazy stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm, I'm imagining some people are listening to this and they're thinking, well, this is great process and they're going to be empowered, but they still fear the outcome is going to be no, that the, the, you know, their spouse that they're negotiating with about what they're going to eat or when they're, how often they're going to go out to a restaurant or all that, that they're still going to say no. And you have a whole chapter in, in Never Split the Difference called Beware Yes and Master No. So can you talk about why we should not fear them you know, we, we put out our gambit and then they say, no, I don't want to do that. Well, it's, it's, it's never no by itself. It's always no and. And the real value is where the and is. So you, you get your conversation so that the, the no is only confined to maybe one small piece. And then you get into the and, you know, and, 
you know, here are the other considerations and here's the rest of the thinking. So the no is not a rejection of you. The no becomes focused on a course of action that doesn't work for the moment. And it's a way to narrow this down so that no just becomes another answer in a collaborative conversation. Um, and and that then it doesn't become a personal rejection. So and and the other the other thing too is in, in mastering no is understanding what happens to someone when they say no. You know, there's what happens when we hear no and what happens when we say no. And when we say no, we feel protected. You know, there's not there's not a parent out there. And my son is my director of operations now and a full-on contributor to our thinking. When he was 17, the words, Dad, can I, were always met with a no. (laughs) Before he finished the sentence. But having said no, I can remember probably every time. Once I said no, I would say, all right, so what was it that you wanted? Because since I already said no, I felt protected and I was willing to listen. And, And he came to learn that after I said no was actually his best chance of making his case for something. So he wasn't afraid of no. He was, and, and kids aren't. And our kids learn that after a parent has said no, there's a real good chance now I can make my case and they might be more open than, than, than before they said no because people feel protected when they say the word no. Oh, I love that. So, so it sounds like, like when we hear the word no, we can, our brains do something. So there's a case where, you know, in Daniel Kahneman's lingo of system two and system one, our system one, the automatic, the limbic system might feel bad, but we can override that with this knowledge that their no is something that we should expect and and actually welcome as a step to, because if, if they didn't have that no, we wouldn't even need to have the conversation, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a, a, no, a, a no should be a welcome step. I mean, sometimes I look at it as if you were going to carve a statue out of stone, you get rid of what doesn't work and you're left with something that's beautiful. So your no's help you get rid of what doesn't work. And maybe you can you can sculpt a great interaction as a result. Gotcha. Um, one, one thing we haven't talked about, which seems incredibly powerful and and I have to admit that I have not yet had the guts to do it, at least consciously, is mirroring. Can you, can you, can you talk about that? Because it feels so damn manipulative. And I'm always sure I'm going to get caught. And in fact, in the book, you tell a story in which there's mirroring going on, you know, being done to you and you don't notice it. But I, as the listener to the audiobook, I hear it right away. And so, yeah. and which reinforces this idea in my mind that everyone can, everyone can spot it. Can you talk about like what mirroring is and, and why it's so powerful and how it can be used effectively? Well, yeah, it feels ridiculously awkward and nobody spots. It's repeating the last one to three words of what someone has just said. And then what you, and then after that, when you get really good at it, I mean, you're going to pick out one to three selected words and it's sort of, it's word for word. You know, I had a colleague of mine that loves to argue concepts, and we're talking late one night, and he says, you know, I don't think this mirroring stuff works. I don't see how it could be possible to get somebody talking by just repeating the last three words. And I said, the last three words? And he goes, yeah, I just don't think that's going to work. And then he goes, wait a minute, you just got me. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's this, it's this unconscious reaction where people go on, and people love it. 
And it is awkward enough that some people that are struggling with it, when, when I know that what they need is more mirroring because it, it gains space, it helps create the space between yes and no. It gains space in negotiations. I'll say to somebody like, look, tomorrow's mirror day. Don't worry about anything else. I want you to mirror everybody that you talk to the entire day. And, and I said, just don't worry about anything else tomorrow. Just mirror people. And they get to the end of the day and they go like, wow, it was crazy. Like everybody loved talking to me today. I actually had a circumstance where two of my students at USC, two women that I'm coaching them because I, when they're my students, I coach them. And uh, one of them comes up to me and she says, all right, so I need help in this. This is what I need to do. And I said, well, you need more mirrors. And um, uh, this is what I want you to do tomorrow. I want tomorrow to be mirror day. I says, as a matter of fact, I just put, you know, one of your student, one of your fellow students through this today, Raphael. I said, you know, that's what I had her doing today. She goes, what? I go, I go, yeah. She says, Raphael's a good friend of mine. And I had a bunch of converse, wonderful conversations with her today. I didn't know that's what she was doing. <laughs> she said, I fell into this today. I, I, Raphael and I had, had some of the most delightful conversations today. And that's all she was doing to me? I go, yeah, there you go, right? So you should be fine doing it tomorrow because you just had it done to you today. <laughs> but it's, it's just, it's, and people, it makes people who are doing it until they realize how effective it is you feel like the other person's going to burst into flames the first time you do it. They're going to explode or they're going to stare at you. And it's, it's insanely effective. It's the closest thing uh, to a Jedi mind trick of anything that, that my company and I teach. I just, and people love it. It makes for great conversations. Right. So can you give us an example of how, where in a negotiation someone might think about using mirroring? Like what's its tactical value? Sure. All right. So um, tactical value is it gets the other person to expand what they just said and go on. So what it'll do is, number one, if you don't understand what they're really saying, it'll get them to reword it. And by mirroring specific words, what you're actually communicating to the other person is, I got the words that you just said, so you don't need to repeat them verbatim because I got it. And this is sort of like an American overseas who says the same thing in the exact same words, only louder. <laughs> well, you don't get that response when you mirror because you just confirm you got the word. So part of their brain interaction is like, oh, I need to use different words. And so they expand. Um, I've got a there's a business executive that that uh, is a ridiculously smart guy. He mirrors the other side's position in every negotiation because it tells him whether or not there's any softness or latitude in their position by the virtue of how they respond to the mirror. He does it so much that when he goes into negotiations, he'll get his colleagues that are going to be there in the negotiation with him. And it says, watch what I do, because he loves telling people and having the other side not know it. He says, I'm going to mirror their positions. I'm going to repeat throughout this conversation, I'm going to repeat the last one to three words that they say. I'm going to do it over and over and over. They're never going to see it, and they're always going to expand because he's a big show-off, and he loves telling people he's going to do this. <laughs> and the first time he, he did this with his colleagues, they were like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, fine. 
And then they'd walk into the negotiations. And every time he'd married, kind of sneak a look at one of his colleagues and kind of go like, see, I told you so. (laughs) As the other side went on. So he uses it as actually his strongest bargaining tool. Because when the other side in a negotiation takes a position, you need to know whether it's solid or whether or not they're bluffing, they're puffing. The mirror tool is is probably the single best way to quickly smoke out when someone's when someone's puffing and talking about a bunch of things they don't really want. Right. So in a family negotiation, the or the mirror would be used when when you're not getting what you want yet and you don't quite understand what's what's standing in the way. Yeah, exactly. And a family negotiation is going to get the other person to go on. They're going to, if, if they're talking to you at all, they want you to understand. They're just worried as to whether or not you're actually going to listen. So it displays a certain amount of listening and openness to more listening, mm-hmm. which then increases the chances that the other side is going to feel comfortable going on and tell you more. So in family negotiations, you know, non-price negotiations, if you will, where there's so much more at stake. Yeah, it's particularly effective because the family negotiations, we got a long history of not listening to each other, not being open to listening. Huh. And the other side really is kind of kind of wanting to hear. They're just afraid you're going to shut them down again. Huh. That's amazing. So I have one more question, and this one comes from my son. When I, my, Both of my kids were very excited when I told them I was going to interview you because they, I made them both listen to the audio book, and you know, they both used it, uh, the techniques, and have come back and told me how amazing they were. And my son, All right. my son wanted to know, can you, do you use this or can you use this on yourself? Can you negotiate with yourself? You know, let's say, you know, the biggest problem with people like, you know, exercising, eating right, doing all those things is their own. There's some voice in their own head that says, yeah, but I'd rather eat this piece of crap or I'd rather sit on the couch. Is is this stuff applicable solo? Yeah, it is. It is. And, um, uh, you, you know, there's there's little tweaks like you can talk to yourself. You, you, if, if you actually say to yourself, you can do this. Exactly like that. It's far more effective even than saying, I can do this. Huh. Why is that? It, um, it's, a, uh, it's a little bit more like you're being coached by someone who's on your side as opposed to talking to, you know, talking to yourself. It's a, there's, a, there's a difference in the way the brain reacts to the words I and a different to the way the brain reacts to the word you. And you is a much more engaging word than I is. So it feels more collaborative and it feels far more supportive when you say to yourself, you can do this, you got this. Huh. As opposed to, I can do this, I got it. I guess the almost like the brain hears that voice as coming from a stranger. Like when you were talking earlier about what I'm hearing is, it feels self-centered from someone else. Yeah. That's really cool. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so you can't coach yourself. You need just need the same kind of tweak in order to make it work. Right. So what what do you have suggestions for when when you hear a no from yourself? All right, so uh, you know, then you'd say, "All right, you really don't like that." 
how do we, how do we make this work? <laughs> so li- I mean, literally it's, it's, like you're talking to someone else. Yeah. 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 And it feels more supportive to yourself. I mean, it feels like you're not alone. Wow. This is so different. This feels really profound to me because the way most people talk to themselves is kind of negative is putting themselves down and trying to like, you know, plug their ears and say, la, la, la over all the negative voices. Like I have to override them. I have to overcome them. I have to dominate them. Yeah. 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 It, 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 it very, very much. So when, when in fact we could coach ourselves the same way as very same way we'd be coaching some, somebody else. And we feel stronger as a result by being on our own side. Wow. So I, I have to tell you that I've, I've been inspired by this conversation. You know, I said, I, like, I've read the book. I've listened to the audio book. I actually listened to it three times while training for a marathon in, in my ears. And, of course, you know, not doing it means that I've got a certain level of chops, but it's still highly theoretical. So I am I'm publicly committing to going and taking one of your courses um, because I have a feeling that it's going to become a, a foundational element in my own coaching, like the the never split the difference method is, is going to be is something that's not having it in, in my, at my fingertips is something that's keeping me from being as good a health coach as I can be. And so I'd like to offer other people the same opportunity. How can people find out more about you and about your services and your, and your uh, courses? So I the quickest and simplest way to keep up to speed on a weekly basis. We put out a weekly negotiation advisory newsletter it's complimentary it's free i had a friend of mine that used to say if it's free i'll take three <laughs> <laughs> so um uh, uh the easiest way is to text the words that's right t-h-a-t-s-r-i-g-h-t with no spaces and no punctuation no apostrophe no space right it is all uh, all one word that's right to 22828 the number 22828 That'll sign you up quick and easy. Um, you'll get an interaction to sign up for the for the for the newsletter. We uh, the website is blackswanltd.com, and we've got other training sessions. But you know, we just did a one day training to anybody that wanted to show up in Los Angeles, and we've got more coming up. And we tell about those in the newsletter. We tell you where you can get the best price on the book, Amazon, as usual. <laughs> um, but the, the, the quickest way to stay up to speed on everything we, we're doing is subscribing to the newsletter. Awesome. And I, and I get it. I get a lot of newsletters, and honestly, there's very few of them that I read. There's some that I just, you know, don't read at all. There's others that I put into a folder for this is going to be useful. And yours, I, I read right away because I find it's weird. It's like serendipity. Like when I read that article, like that day – I'm going to find an opportunity to use that particular technique. It really is a, it's, it's a short newsletter and it's really useful and to the point and, and entertaining. So I, I, I definitely recommend that to everyone, even, even if you can't afford the book yet, the newsletter will, will empower you. Yeah, it's awesome. And, and like you said, we try to make it concise and short um, so that you, if you have an opportunity to use it that day, that you can. Well, Chris Voss, it's such an honor to talk to you. I really look forward to meeting you in person at one of your of your courses. I am committing to, to doing that, to, to bettering myself. And I want to thank you for all the work you're doing and for taking the time today. Howard, uh, I'm looking forward to meeting you in person, man. Thank you for having me on. All right. Take care.
If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit BigChangeProgram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about and, for the very first time, a real-time transcription of the entire conversation, thanks to Tracy Scharf, at PlantYourself.com slash 208. That's right. You can read the transcription right from the show notes, or you can download it in PDF format. Thank you, Tracy, and thanks to all the other members of the Plant Yourself Transcription Army. In addition to being really convenient, I hope the transcriptions will allow us to spread our advocacy to the deaf and hearing impaired communities. Big thanks to Plant Yourself podcast patrons... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Tina Ahern, Jonathan Genville, Jen Vilkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, and Gila Lacerte. Welcome, Gila, for your generous support of the podcast. Thanks also to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. You can write a review on iTunes. Man, we haven't gotten a review since the 4th of April. I'm feeling parched here for reviews. Those, those really help us uh, gain traction, get more listenership. So if you have a couple of minutes and you're enjoying the show and you've listened and you've gotten value, please take a few minutes to go write a review on iTunes for us. Thanks. Also, you can become, of course, a patron of the show with a one-time gift or an ongoing contribution. You can do so at plantyourself.com. Just find the donate button on the right sidebar. In garden news, I planted beans yesterday, 24 bush beans and 18 pole beans. Uh, It's part of my homegrown calorie initiative for this summer. And I used a method shared by Paul Gauchi in his documentary, Back to Eden, which I think you can find at uh, like backtoedenfilm.com. It's really cool. He's a very religious Christian who got inspired by looking at nature and looking at the woods and looking at how things grow without human intervention to formulate his own garden. And so his documentary is called Back to Eden. And basically it involves using lots and lots of wood chips and just a bit of soil to cradle each bean. So instead of needing tons of manure and compost, just the amount amount that goes around each bean to help it get a good start with wood chips and then soil under there. I'll let you know how it goes. In running news, I got a 5K on Saturday. Um, I've got the Umstead Half Marathon. It's my first trail run, kind of technical trail run or semi-technical, I guess, on May 21st. And you know how sometimes people get drunk and they do stupid things late at night? Well, I didn't get drunk, but I, I was part of a, a pretty frenzied iMessage conversation with Josh Lajani and Marcus Cook and Garth Davis, and basically they kind of goaded me into signing up for this marathon, which is coming up in June. They're all going, and they're going to hang out, and a bunch of other people I know, uh, other podcast guests are going to be there as well. So it was just, you know, all right, I found a cheap flight, and why not? And I signed up, and then it was midnight, and I went to bed. The next morning, I got up to read about this race, which is called the, the Leadville Marathon. 
And holy cow, it uh, starts at 10,000 feet. It goes up to 13,000 feet. Um, it seems really daunting and quite uh, scary, in fact. So I got up this morning to train, and I decided to wear a dark shirt and put a backpack on uh, to kind of simulate the effects of altitude as best I can here down near sea level. So I've got uh, almost two months, like six and a half weeks, to prepare for that. And uh, hopefully I will be back after that to continue podcasting for all you good people. That's it for this week. So as always, be well, my friends.